by taking us back to middle school science class for a few minutes. One of the great discoveries in the history of science was learning that the sun, not the earth, is at the center of our solar system. This was discovered all the way back in the 16th century. You see, the, the prevailing view before that was that the earth was at the center of everything, and then the sun and the planets and everything else up there revolved around the earth. But then this Polish genius by the name of Nicholas Copernicus, he took another look at things. He looked at the math, and things didn't quite add up. And so Copernicus proposed a different model. He put his great mind to work, and he said, no, no the, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. We have it backwards. The earth and everything else in our solar system, it revolves around the sun. And suddenly, everything fell into place. What Nicholas Copernicus discovered that set the table now for, for scientists and astronomers to build their current model of the solar system uh, where we can really enjoy the wonders of God's created universe. And, and the aha moment in the science was fixing the right thing at the center. You see, when the wrong thing was at the center, everything else was a little out of whack, a little out of balance. Things didn't quite add up. But when the right thing is at the center, everything else falls into place. Well, hey, Brookside, my name is Tim, one of the pastors here. So great to be with you today. Guys at Mod 7, it is such a joy every week to have you gather and join us. Everyone watching online, thanks for checking in. Elkhorn, it was so good to be out there with you last week. And then, and then Millard, how's it going? It is so good to worship our Lord together today. Well, here's the reason I brought up everything that I just did about the sun being at the center of the universe in our little middle school science lesson. I'm telling you this because I want us to see that all of us here have a center around which we revolve. All of us here have a center that we build our lives around, that provides focus and perspective to our lives. I mean, for some of us, it's a, it's a relationship. Maybe it's your spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or just a good friendship that you've got. It could be your grades. It could be a job. It could be some goal that you have. To you, that you're trying to meet this year. There could be a hundred different things that you're looking to as a center of your life. And the thing that Copernicus learned about our solar system is the same thing that we can sense about our own lives. When the wrong thing is at the center, things don't quite add up. Everything else is a little out of perspective. Maybe you're listening to me right now and this describes what you're living today. You don't know why, but things just seem a little out of whack. Things don't quite add up in your life the way you think that they should. This can express itself in all sorts of ways, right? So maybe you're a relationship that's important to you. Instead of leaning into that and really building a healthy relationship, you're, you're blowing up in anger, or you're withdrawn, and you go dark in a key relationship. You don't know why, but you are. Or maybe some, maybe some private addiction or bad habit is starting to bleed from your private life into your public life. Maybe everything is going great. Maybe you're hitting your goals. Maybe you've got what you want. But there's still this gnawing sense inside of you that things aren't adding up the right way, that you're still empty. You don't know why, but it is that way. It's scary and it's unsettling when we don't quite feel like things are adding up in our lives, when things are a little off kilter. It's unsettling when this is the case, but when the right object is at the center of your life, everything adds up. It, everything falls into place. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is, is giving us key teaching 
on prayer in, the, in this book of the Gospels. And, and really, it's called the Lord's Prayer. Many of you know it that way. And tucked into the Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples, teaches us to pray, Jesus gives us this gift. And he makes sure that every one of us here, he makes sure that, that we know what the center of our lives should be. So we should be dialed in because when Jesus, God's Son, tells us what should be the center of our lives, that's worth paying attention to. And the center of our lives that Jesus points us to, that center is God. The center that we orbit around or else everything else is out of whack. You see, the thing that stands out about the Lord's Prayer is how obviously God-centered it is. I mean, the first half of the prayer, before Jesus gets into any of our own personal requests or before he gets into what's going on in our lives, the first half of the prayer is all about God. And so last week, Jeff walked us through verse 9, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, where we saw that God is our good, perfect, heavenly Father. And so that, that is just mind-blowing when you think about it, that we have access to God like a child has relationship to his or her father. That, that, that's tremendous. That, that shows that we're designed for relationship. We have access to God as his children, as adopted sons and daughters through Jesus. Jeff showed us last week that God is holy. He's set apart. He's transcendent. He is perfectly righteous. And then as we move from verse 9 in the Lord's Prayer to verse 10 in the Lord's Prayer, as we move from who God is to how we pray to what we pray, the focus is still just as firmly fixed on God. Check it out in verse 10. Here's what this next phrase, this next line of the Lord's Prayer says. Jesus just tells us to say, speaking of God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not, not Tim's kingdom, not Tim's will. God's kingdom, God's will, that the center of our lives, the center around which we revolve is God. And so really what Jesus is saying here, it boils down to our posture before God. Jesus is pointing us to, towards this posture of, of radical humility, trust, and surrender. That's what having God at the center of your life looks like. I mean, if, if you get this posture of trust right, it affects not only your prayer life, it affects everything about you. Like this next week and this next month, as we approach God with a desire to see his will done, his kingdom come, as we express trust, not in your agenda, not in my agenda, but in God's agenda. And so I'll, I'll ask this question again at the end of our time today, but let me get our a foot in the door now with this question that's so important. If we're going to be driving towards surrender, humility, trust, then a question we can't get away from is, is where in your life do you need to pray Matthew 6.10? Where in your life do you need to just with, with open hands and a heart that, that expresses trust in God, where do you need to pray that God, your kingdom come? God, your will be done. So what we're going to do today is we're going to dig into Matthew 6.10. And here's the three questions we're going to walk through as we look closely at this uber-important phrase in the Lord's Prayer. First question is, what does God's kingdom even mean? I mean, a lot of you have said this prayer, you've heard this prayer a thousand times in your life. But do you know what that, what that phrase, God's kingdom, do you know what that means? 
I mean, this can maybe feel kind of heady, but, but this makes a huge difference in your day-to-day life, which just makes sense. The, the biggest things in life are usually the ones that are worth close attention. This is worth close atten- attention. Let's put our thinking caps on. We can do it. But we'll see this isn't some abstract idea we're looking at. This, this makes a difference for every part of your life. Next question we're going to ask is, is how does God's kingdom come? I mean, that's what Jesus is telling us to pray here, your kingdom come. So, so since this is what Jesus tells us to pray, what does that look like? What should we be watching for? And then the third question is, what does all this talk about kingdom? What does that mean for my prayer life and really all of my life? This is where we take this theological idea that's so valuable about God's kingdom, but we say this isn't just some abstract idea. This is tremendously practical. Because here in Matthew 6, Jesus connects, it, connects this idea with how we pray. It is that boots on the ground, difference-making, practical. And so we'll land there today. We'll see what difference this makes in your life this week. So first question, what is the kingdom of God? Well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, where we learn so much about who Jesus is, why he's come, what he's doing, kingdom language is used about 100 times. That the kingdom of God is at the heart of Jesus' message and his ministry. And so if you're here, if you're just starting to check Jesus out, if you're just looking into church, you have to wrestle with kingdom. You can't check out on what we're talking about. Because if something is as central to Jesus that it comes up a hundred times in the Gospels, that means to understand Jesus, to, to follow Jesus, we, we can't ignore kingdom. We have to look at what this kingdom of God means. And so to help us understand kingdom, here's the best short phrase that eventually you'll read about if you dig any depth into the literature, right, that's out there. People will say the kingdom of God equals the, the reign or the rule of God in our lives. Or, or if you want a little bit of a longer definition that fleshes that out, the kingdom of God is where the reality of God's reign is responded to the right way. For those of you that can appreciate alliteration, I'll let you appreciate all of the R's in that definition there for a second. But, but, but it's, where the, it's, where the, it's where the reality of God's reign, because God does reign. It's where the reality of, his God, of God's reign is responded to the right way. It's where we say God's way is the best way. That's what kingdom means. And in a sense, we all have our own little kingdoms that help us wrap our arms around this. Little kingdoms where things are done the way that we want them. I mow my lawn a certain way. And so now that my boys are mowing, if they're out there mowing, if they miss a spot, I have them go back out and clean it up. To, so that way there's not like this three-foot strip of grass in our yard where everything else is mowed. Right? I, why do I have them do that? Because my lawn is part of my kingdom. You know, so I can have them do that. Or, or for my boys, the, the closest thing maybe that they have to a kingdom is their bedroom. We don't let brothers barge in on them in their bedrooms. They need to knock and, and ask permission to enter. That's where they have some of their favorite possessions. Check out this picture of, of a sign my son Keller put on his door a few years ago. That This shows that this is his kingdom, right? He says, do not disturb, for Keller is trying to relax. You know? I mean, if, if only it was that easy. But, but he retreated to this space because his room is his kingdom. It is where, it's where he has a say and how things are done. Our small and our very imperfect kingdoms are where things are done the way we want them. Because we're kind of in charge of that area. 
God's kingdom is where his design, is where his reign is responded to the right way. And then if you start to look into things in the Bible, you realize that this story, this thread of the kingdom of God, it's, it's, really, it's really a thread that unites the entire Bible. It runs across the entire story of Scripture. All the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning of our Bibles, we find God speaking a good creation into existence. And then at least at the beginning, God's good creation, it's responded to, his good reign is responded to the right way by his first humans, right? By, by Adam and Eve, where they live in this vibrant, personal, interactive relationship with their creator, their heavenly father, and their king. That's a picture of what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. But then it doesn't take long as we keep reading through the first book of the Bible where we realize that things take a turn south. Instead of continuing to respond the right way to God's kingdom, instead of leaning into that, Adam and Eve resist. They rebel. They go against God's clear wishes. They rebel and they fall into sin. And now this introduces the primary problem of human existence, our sin and the separation from God that's fallout from that. Now, even, even now that sin is a factor, that doesn't change the reality of God's reign. God is still in control, and God is still good. But what's changed is the way we respond to that. Instead of, instead of leaning in to God's reign, we rebel. We resist. We fight it. Instead of having God on the throne of our lives, at the center of our, of our orbit, someone or something else is on the throne of your life instead. I'm so glad that's not how the story ends. You see, the future that God has planned is that one day God's perfect reign will again be fully realized. It'll be fully responded to the right way forever and ever, forever and ever. Everyone who places their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior will experience the full relationship with God, the uninterrupted relationship with God that you were designed for. We'll experience the, the full design that God has for a renewed physical creation. I mean, this is what the end of our Bibles looks forward to. So we started back in Genesis 1 and 2. The very end of our Bibles, Revelation 1 and 2, points us forward to this time when the reality of God's reign is responded to the right way forever and ever by those who follow Jesus. That's hope. Brookside. So what is God's kingdom? It's where the reality of God's reign is responded to the right way. God's kingdom is where you say, where we say, God's way is the best way. Next question. How does the kingdom come? Here's why this is the right next question to ask. Maybe you're saying, hey, hey Tim, if God's perfect reign, if that's resisted through sin, how is God's kingdom strong enough to overcome sin? Because you know how subversive sin is. You know how strong and how subtle sin is in your life. It's tough to see on the other side of that sometimes. Or maybe you're saying, if the final promise of God's kingdom is this future picture of, of a perfected, renewed creation, then how's that going to happen? Because I can look around, I can read the headlines. We are a far way from that. It, you're asking, how secure is God's promise? Well, the way to answer those questions is by answering the larger question. 
How does God's kingdom come? Well, the shortest, the shortest answer to this is simply by saying God's kingdom comes through Jesus. Or even more specifically, God's kingdom comes through Jesus' death and his resurrection. What Jesus did for us on the cross and the fact that he was raised again on the third day is that big of a deal for everything we believe and proclaim as Christians. You see, Jesus came to proclaim and demonstrate the arrival of God's kingdom in his ministry. At the very beginning of Mark's gospel, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth, check this out, Mark 1.15, Jesus says, the time has come. So, so, so whatever they, they were looking forward to, all this anticipation that we read about in the Old Testament, it's pointing towards this, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And then Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? The good news is that the kingdom of God has arrived, has drawn near in the person and work of Jesus. So Jesus came to proclaim God's kingdom, and then Jesus came to accomplish, to inaugurate God's kingdom in his death and resurrection. God's kingdom is now available on the other side of the cross in a way that it hadn't been before that. We have such access such opportunity. In his death, death and resurrection, Jesus breaks the power of sin. And he breaks the reign of death. There's hope. We trust God's promise for the future because the future has already broken into the present when Jesus walked out of the tomb where he was laid. Jesus secured the future that is God's plan. And so now we sit between the, the launch of God's kingdom over here and the final establishment of God's kingdom over here. When, when Jesus comes back, this, mean, this means that things aren't yet, the way, aren't yet the way they're supposed to be. God's kingdom is still resisted. Sin is still present. Creation is fractured in so many different ways. And so we still pray, God, your kingdom come. We can't accomplish this ourselves. We won't accomplish this ourselves. We need Jesus. And we notice all the ways God's kingdom is currently peeking through. It is currently taking shape. It's currently breaking in to our lives, in us and around us. I mean, lives are being changed as people follow Jesus, receiving him as their Savior and their Lord. Check this out. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 13, where he says, says he, speaking of God, that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That, that's kingdom language. God's kingdom advances. People are transferred from one dominion to another as people place their faith in Jesus. Or we see God's kingdom advancing through relationships that are being reconciled. We, we see God's kingdom advancing when whole structures and society are being renewed. And we've got a great example of this tomorrow when we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. King was a Christian who was so compelled by his awareness of what God intended for race relationships and equality because King could read the same Bible we can read. He sees what's obvious there that, that every one of us is created in God's image. Every one of us has tremendous dignity and value. King sees that. And so this vision so compelled him that it shaped what he pursued and how he pursued it. His dream of equality, it was saturated with Scripture. 
King was compelled by God's picture of the way things are supposed to be. And the segregation and the inequality that he could see aren't the way things God designed it, or aren't the way God designed it. And so King worked faithfully, he worked tirelessly towards that, even to his death, and through Martin Luther King Jr. God advanced his kingdom. He, he brought us closer to the picture of what we, what we need to be pursuing, what we need to still be pursuing in race relationships. Now, now, now hear me clearly on this. There's still a whole lot of work to be done in that area and every area. I mean, that's one area where I'm so grateful for the ways Brookside is trying to be more diverse. But we still have work to be done, Brookside. There's still a whole lot of work to be done. It won't be done fully and finally until Jesus comes back. But at the same time, we can point to all sorts of ways God's kingdom is peeking through, it is breaking in, is taking ground. You see, as God pushes his kingdom forward, there are ways this can happen very dramatically. And so miracles happen, people are healed. Invisible spiritual forces that we can't even see, they're pushed back. Lives are changed overnight. That this blows the categories of our Western secularism. But it is just as true today as it was in the first century and throughout history. That there are bold, dramatic ways that God's kingdom advances. We need to remember that. And we need to remember that, that there are also other ways God's kingdom advances. Sometimes it doesn't happen dramatically. Some, sometimes God's kingdom advances very gradually. Earlier this week in our 365 Bible reading plan, we came across Luke 13, where, where Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like yeast working through 60 pounds of flour. That's a whole lot of flour. So I would guess that kneading yeast into 60 pounds of flour, I would guess that takes a whole lot of time, and I would guess that takes a whole lot of effort to do that. There are ways that God's kingdom advances like that gradually, with time, with effort. I mean, it took a lot of time and effort for Martin Luther King to bring about the change that he led. It certainly didn't happen overnight. The, the rise of public education, progress in health care, minimization of poverty in the majority world, things that are good, <laughs> these don't happen overnight. They take decade after decade after decade. How about your own day-to-day -day life? Even there, maybe the kingdom of God advances in small, gradual ways. I, I love the questions that this guy, Henry Nowen, puts in front of us. The right questions to ask is, as we say, okay, okay, maybe it's gradual, but how can I be an agent of God's kingdom? How can he build what he's doing through me? These small questions are great questions any one of us here should be asking. Where, where Henry Nowen, he says, says, did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I, did I let go of my anger and resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? These are the real questions, he says. And I think then that he would agree. These are the questions that help us embody the kingdom of God in whatever sphere of influence you have, whether it's at high school, whether it's in college, whether it's in the workplace or family. These are the real questions. Maybe the change you see in your own life feels very gradual. Where, where you can point to everyone around you who feels like they're growing in Christ-likeness so fast and so easy. 
but where the change in your life feels gradual. It feels like it takes time and effort. But at the same time, you know that you're a different person now than you were six months ago. You know that you're a different person now than you were six years ago. Maybe this lasting change in your life, maybe it'll always take you longer than it feels like it takes everyone else. But Brookside, listen to me. That doesn't take away one bit from how authentic, genuine, real, true that godly change in your life still is. Sometimes God's kingdom advances gradually. And then there are times that God's kingdom advances counterintuitively in ways that we don't expect. In Matthew 6.10, the, the prayer is for, for God's kingdom to come, for, for his will to be done. And, and really those are two different ways of saying the same thing. At the end of Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus in this garden called Gethsemane. And he's praying there for himself. Exactly what he tells his disciples, us, to pray for ourselves in Matthew 6. In Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus is praying. He's asking God, he's asking God to spare him from the upcoming atrocities of his crucifixion, the, the pain, the suffering, the shame that would be part of his death. That's what Jesus means in this verse when, when he says, my, my father, if it's possible, may this cup, this cup of God's wrath and all the difficulty that goes along with that, may this cup be taken from me. But then look at how Jesus ends his prayer. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prays the same thing he tells us to pray. God, your kingdom come. God, your will be done. I mean, talk about a posture of surrender. Talk about a posture of trust. He says this even knowing the difficulty, the pain, the, the suffering, the apparent defeat that was ahead of him. But Jesus shows that kind of radical surrender and trust. In our own lives, the advance of God's kingdom doesn't always mean everything is always going to be up and to the right. Sometimes God accomplishes his purpose through us, and sometimes God accomplishes his purpose for us, in us, not through success, but sometimes he does that through suffering, through trial, through difficulty, through, through apparent defeat. You see, the upside-down nature of Christianity is that God's kingdom, it doesn't mean the absence of trial and suffering. Sometimes trial and suffering is precisely the way God advances his kingdom. All right, we've been looking at some big, important topics. Let's come up for air, right? The, the hard part is done. Way to go for sticking with me through some really heady stuff, but, but some really important stuff, because you can see now, right, how this means something for the way that you live every part of your life this week. So let's end with that final question where we just ask, okay, let's start with a few, let's start with a few things. What, what does all this mean for how I pray? What does all this mean for how I live? We're leaning into prayer in a, in a special way for these 40 days that start the new year. And so we, we've encouraged you to pick a time. We've encouraged you to pick a place. For me, that's starting to be this, this desk that we've got in an extra bedroom we have upstairs in my home, where it's kind of our room where we throw all the kids' stuff. It's the room where I have a few books and do some studying when I'm doing that. It's the room we, we close the door to it when people come over. It's, it's that room. But, but it's the room where I'm going to now in the mornings and just saying, hey, hey God, I'm going to start my day. That, that's my time. That's my place that I'm going to spend with you. 
We've encouraged you to leverage the journals that we're giving away. Just writing out your prayers to God every day for 40 years. Or for, for, not for 40 years. <laughs> Let's try it for 40 days first. Maybe it'll turn into 40 years, but we'll start with 40 days. Many of you are reading through the, the short daily chapters in the 40-day devotional that we have. I, I love how you're responding to, to this emphasis on prayer. It's just so good and so right for us to be doing as a church family. But now how does what we've seen today from Matthew 6.10, how does that add to how we're just immersing ourselves in prayer at the start of this year? I'll just look briefly at three things to get us started. So, so first of all, Matthew 6.10, it, it teaches us that we pray to God as king. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're reminding ourselves that God is king, not Tim, not you, not us. And so on the one hand, that gives us tremendous confidence because God is king. He's powerful and he's able to accomplish what he's going to do. But it also gives us tremendous humility because if God is king, that means that I'm not. And so I need to bow my knee. I need to surrender my will to his. A second practical application is that, is that praying your kingdom come, your will be done, is best prayed alongside others. You see, there are times when I can feel God's absence in my life much more than his presence. I know one pastor said that's many of us. We're much more prone, all of us, to sense God's absence than to see his presence, his activity. And so praying with and alongside of others is such a great way for others to point out the gradual, counterintuitive ways that God's kingdom is advancing in your life, ways that maybe you don't see yourself. Or praying with others is a great way to, to catch me back into line, to get me back into line when needed. Because there are times when I'm pursuing my own agenda, not God's. When I'm being selfish instead of servant-hearted. When, when I'm concerned about my kingdom, not the Lord's. Praying with others is a great way to knock me back into place when I get out of line that way. This is why community is essential for a vibrant Christian life. This is why we talk about community groups as often as we do. Today is Group League Sunday. So if you're not part of a group, everyone here will have a chance to get part of a group today. If you're watching online, make sure to visit our community groups page. Check out what we have there. And so we pray to God as king. We pray with and alongside of others. And then third practical application, we hang on for the ride. It, it, you see, as we trust in God's agenda for our lives, we are placing our trust in someone else. There are times when that is awesome. When I was just finishing up college, I was doing a high school ministry internship with a bunch of high schoolers. And uh, during the last few days of my, of my internship, the youth pastor that I was working with and, and my wife had secretly been planning this gift where, where Karen and I were, were gifted with this amazing trip to San Diego for a few days. I had no part in that. I was completely oblivious to it. Carrie was like, after we were on the plane, she's like, are you sure you didn't know what was going on? Nope, I was oblivious to it. It was entirely someone else's agenda for me. And it was awesome. And then there are also times when following someone else's agenda, hanging on for the ride, when someone else is in charge, there are times that's really difficult. When our oldest son, Carson, was learning to walk, there was a time that he pulled himself up onto an end table at our house, and, and there, was a, there was a large glass lamp on this end table that was sitting on a doily or a table runner or whatever it was, and he pulled on the, on, the, on the doily, pulled this huge glass lamp onto his head, got a huge deep cut right here next to his left eye. And so Karen and I were both there. We rushed him into the doctor, 
and obviously he needs stitches. Now, now there is no way Karsten is going to let a needle get near his eye. So he's young, not even a year probably at that point. And so, so I was the one tasked with holding Karsten completely immobile. I had to wrap my arms and legs around him, hold his head firmly in place because nothing else would keep him immobile while the doctor netted, uh, uh, needled the, the, the needle and thread through his face. Carson didn't want that. He certainly didn't understand what was going on. It was difficult. He was crying, screaming. He was completely at, at the mercy of my own will for him. And it was for his best. So, so whether you're in a season right now where following God and surrounding yourself to his kingdom is awesome, some of you listening, you're in a season where following God's will and submitting yourself to his agenda, it feels really difficult. But, but whatever your case, remember that God's agenda is best. He's our good father, even as we pray, your kingdom come. So, so back to that question I asked at the beginning. Where in your life, what arena are you in where you need to pray with, with open hands? God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Is it your marriage, a friendship, a relationship, school, something else difficult going on at work? Maybe it's just an area where you know what obedience looks like, but you just don't want to do it. Where in your life, where in your life do you need to ask with open hands that God, your kingdom come? God, your will be done. All right, I want to end today just like we ended last week where I want to invite you wherever you are to stand. And we're going to just pray the Lord's Prayer together as a church family, which is so good to do. So, so stand up with me. I'm going to say the first phrase. And then I want you all very verbally, say it boldly, jump right in to say this Lord's Prayer aloud with me. So here's how Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. Now all of us, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil 